I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BC Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Today joining me is Kohei Saito. Saito-san is a professor of philosophy at the University of Tokyo with a focus on political economics. He's actually a recipient of the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science Prize, which is a very prestigious prize awarded to the top scholar in Japan under the age of 45. And today is here to discuss his new book called, in English, Slow Down, The Degrowth Manifesto, which actually comes out this month, January 2024. It was published in Japan previously, where it became a a bestseller, shipping more than half a million copies, I believe, and uh, receiving the Best Asian Book of the Year prize at the time. So Kohei has a, a very radical hypothesis. He believes that the problems of climate change can only be solved, at least this is my understanding of the thesis of the book, if we actually look at the fabric of the political economic system itself, if we look at capitalism and growth themselves, and argues that we need fundamental change at that level if we if we need solutions. So this, this proposition will probably seem quite radical to many of our business listeners, but uh, we wanted to explore it given the importance of the problem, the magnitude of interest that the book has generated, and also the importance for us all to think as broadly as possible about a, a complicated and difficult problem. So congratulations on the uh, English edition, Kohei, and thanks for joining me. Oh, yeah, I'm pretty excited about the publication of my book in the US. And so I'm looking forward to the conversation today. So let's start off with the problem you're trying to solve. Is your book essentially a solution to climate change? Or would you define the problem that you're trying to attack more broadly? Yeah, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Francis Fukuyama said it is the end of history. You know, the capitalism and democracy will split all over the world in the age of globalization. But what happened after 30 years? The the democracy has become very unstabilized and the economic inequality is expanding. And what is more, today we are facing the climate crisis, which is an existential threat to human beings. So what we are witnessing as the end of history is something quite unexpected, which is the end of human history. And if we really avoid this bad scenario, we need to challenge capitalism. Otherwise, there's no solution to the existential threat to our civilization today. This is a polycrisis. Right. There are many putative solutions out there to the sustainability crisis, ranging from regulation, technology, and all sorts of other solutions. You know, yours is quite radical in that you argue that unless we deal with the consequences of growth and the capitalist system that produces them itself, we can't really get to a solution. I mean, you know that this is a radical solution. So what is your argument that this level of change, system change, is actually necessary? Exactly. I do not deny the importance of technology. But at the same time, we cannot simply solve this poly crisis with technologies alone. So I argue that we also need to challenge capitalism. Capitalism as a system of endless capital accumulation, endless economic growth through endless profit making. And the problem is that economic growth in the past is always characterized by excessive production and consumption, especially in the global north with the massive waste of energy and resources. So even if we have new green technologies, if we also try to produce even more and something bigger for the sake of even the economic growth, it is not fast enough. We cannot make a fast transition to uh, decarbonize the economy. 
So I argue that it is necessary to reduce what is unnecessary. For example, private jets, cruise ships, industrial meat production. But the problem is capitalism cannot do this because it continues to produce what is profitable and not necessarily what we actually need. For example, today, the top 1% of rich people are responsible for 15% of carbon emission with their excessive consumption. So I think we really need to change this. And we also need to tackle the inequality in terms of wealth, but also in terms of the responsibility. And I think capitalism is a system that really radicalizes this problem. Right. So let's dig into that a little bit. I guess, first of all, we must define what we mean by capitalism, because, of course, in practice, there are many variants of capitalism around the world. We have things that approach sort of free market archetypes, and we have the sort of social markets in, in other parts of, of Europe and, and state capitalism now as a new form of sort of capitalism, especially in Asia. Do your thoughts apply to more or less all variants of this system or, or to particular variants? All the systems that are driven by the logic of economic growth. So the U.S. is obviously doing very poorly in terms of carbon emission, but also China. China is supposedly a socialist country, but they are pretty much like a capitalist country driven by the logic of growth. And even Scandinavian countries where people are more equal, but they are also exceeding planetary boundaries. It means that they are high social welfare standards are satisfied at the cost of the planet. So excessive consumption everywhere in the global north must be challenged first. But obviously, the rich people, as I said, are more responsible. But the general consumption of production in the global north needs to be reduced in a planned manner. However, capitalism is unable to reduce because it is about growth. And it is also very bad at planning. So I think we need a very different economic system today. Right. Well, so let's dig into some aspects of that. I mean, technology is obviously an, an important consideration here. So many of our solutions to, to problems of social welfare and, and health and so on have been created with technologies arising from a capitalist system. And there are some putative technologies, of course, which could be a major contribution to, to the climate crisis. For instance, if we, if we master the art of carbon capture or nuclear fusion, for example, maybe others. Technology, I would posit, plays a role, and that is an important product of the capitalist system. Would you argue the relationship between technology and the problem in a different way? Obviously, we are profiting from various fruits of technological development. I do not deny, and we also need to improve those technologies. We need more renewable energies, more electric vehicles, and so on. But at the same time, we already have enough technologies to tackle climate crisis. They need more improvement, but we don't necessarily need carbon capture storage and nuclear fusion in order to solve the current crisis. The problem is, if we will have those future technologies, some people may think that we don't have to do anything now because all these dream technology in the future will solve the climate crisis. So in a sense, the technology, especially the dream green technologies, make us believe that we don't have to do anything. So it is kind of the ideology of sustaining the status quo business as usual. And I think it is very dangerous. What we need to do right now is maximizing the existing technologies 
but they are not enough. So we also need to act now in a sense of not simply believing the technological progress, but at the same time, we also talk about reducing, not just making bigger electronic vehicles. We also have to demand smaller number of cars, more public transportation, more bicycle lanes, and so on. So these transformations have to be discussed at the same time, but capitalism cannot do this because they are often, these solutions are often anti-profit, even though these are quite realistic. I guess it's undeniable that we need to be making faster progress towards climate change. And I guess you could argue that you could approach that problem, the problem of speed of, of solutioning in, in different ways. You could say, you know, it's the acceleration of implementation that we need. You could say it's acceleration of technology that we need, but, but you're saying it's the system itself. Do you think there's less mileage in, for example, work on change management, actually getting from A to B? Because there are really two problems in, inside any business problem, right? One of them is what is the end state solution? The other one is how do you get from state A to state B? So, you know, would an alternative philosophy like accelerate implementation and understand the change management problem better? Would that be a viable argument in your opinion? I totally support the basic ideas of SDGs and ESG and, you know, the sustainability, human rights and gender equality are all very important. I totally support these ideas. But the problem is these ideas can never be really implemented within the existing system. Now, look at the Davos, the World Economic Forum are taking place right now. But all those rich people are trying to discuss the solution to the polycrisis. But they come there, they fly there with private jets, and these people never talk about reducing their own consumption, excessive consumption. So I think one of the things is that we really need to tackle this existing excessive economic inequality and this economic inequality for the sake of simple economic growth. And this is something that the capitalism cannot really deal with. Yeah, so I think we really need to challenge capitalism. That's a very simple point. I think we need to implement those ideas. But in order to do this, we need to challenge capitalism. Right. And there's an interesting idea in your, in your book that I, I'm not a political scientist, so I wasn't familiar with the idea of donut economics, which is the idea that there's a sweet spot between basic human welfare. Obviously, we don't want to return to the Middle Ages with you know, low life expectancies and uh, high rates of infectious disease and so on. So we, we want certain material gains, but we want to stay within, then there's the upper bound of, of sort of planetary boundaries. You know, if you think more broadly, I mean, apart from wholesale system change, how do we make sure that we are in that zone, in that donut zone? Because obviously what we wouldn't want to do is to destroy the, the social gains that we've made and move backwards in, in history, or, or perhaps you disagree. Exactly. I argue for degrowth, and degrowth is not compatible with capitalism as a system of constant economic growth. But many people, when they hear the term degrowth, they associate it with puberty, austerity, and so on. But the problem is, it is not necessarily economic growth that brings happiness, well-being, and social security to our life. It is in this system, for the sake of economic growth, many things are actually wasted. If you look at the US, the US is one of the richest countries in the world, but their medical system is privatized and they are 
driven for the logic of profit making. And what happened during the COVID pandemic, many people died. So other countries with smaller GDP actually saved many lives because they have public medical care system like Japan. So these GDP in the US are often wasted because they are not used for the sake of protecting people's lives. So we can actually manage better with smaller GDP. We can put more importance of education, medical care system, free internet, free public transportation. If we invest in those things, these things do not necessarily increase GDP, but they can massively increase our well-being and massively increase the social security and so on. And these are the, also the things that are more sustainable. So I argue that society must not be commodified too much. I argue that the communism, I actually argue for degrowth communism. Communism is not like a Soviet Union or China. It is a society based on commonwealth. The commonwealth of public transportation, commonwealth of education, commonwealth of housing, and so on, so on, then we will have much better life without economic growth. That's actually possible. This is something that we need to try because we are really facing the existential threat of this planet. Interestingly, I think there are leading thinkers. I don't want to speak on their behalf, but I'm thinking of, for instance, Sapatha Dasgupta, the uh, professor of economics in Cambridge who would agree to many of your point suggestions. Um, for example, he, he also believes that GDP is, is the wrong metric because it doesn't take into account natural capital. So you seem to be making progress, but it's at the expense of something invisible, which is you know, natural capital. So he'd say he'd agree that we need a better measure. You know, he, he would probably agree that we need different accounting if we need to take account of natural capital. He would probably agree on what you call essential work, which is there are important areas of the economy which don't have a price right now, which is, so for instance, in the aged society, caring for each other becomes increasingly important. You know, that's, that's not really in the calculation. But he stops short of wholesale system change. How would you argue that taking the best individual suggestions from your ideas is, is not enough? It's actually the fundamental profit motive and the ownership of the means of production and so on. Why, why do we need to go that far? Yeah, I agree that the degrowth is about abandoning GDP as a measure of social progress. You know, GDP has many problems. It doesn't measure education. It doesn't measure the clean air, clean water. It doesn't measure safety. It doesn't measure community, culture. And many, many things are excluded from GDP. So we should have a different kind of measure that actually measures sustainability, social well-being, and not simply about economic activities. And society that focuses on sustainability and well-being does not necessarily presuppose growth. Once we have better access to education, medical care, and you know, transportation system, and so on. And what I'm advocating here are actually partially implemented within capitalism. I ultimately argue for going beyond capitalism. But for example, if you look at Germany, free education, free medical care, these things are already implemented. They are already having better life, better social well-being than Japanese or American people. But Germany is still a capitalist country. But that really creates a very different kind of thinking 
For example, my friends who went to the college in the US, after four years of college education, they have lots of student loans. So they immediately think about working in the financial industry in order to make money. So the future of those students are already determined by the logic of capital because of the debt and so on. But in Germany, where I get my education, my PhD, the students are not paying tuition. So they spend, some students actually spend 10 years at the college. And then after that, they start working in NGO or farming, and they do very different kinds of economic activity, which creates a room for anti-capitalist behaviors. They are not subsumed in the logic of capital, and that creates spaces for making a very different kind of future that are not necessarily associated with money, commodity, and capital growth. This is a radical transformation already taking place within capitalism. And I want to accelerate that kind of tendency everywhere in the world. Right. So let's maybe, for the sake of argument, assume that you're, you're right about the end state. Let's say that is a, a good suggestion. You have another problem, which is akin to your problem of speed, though, don't you? Because you yourself have said in interviews that this, this idea of wholesale system change is hardly likely to appeal to broad sets of stakeholders embedded in the system. So how do we get from A to B, in your argument, you know, short of a revolution or something? I mean, how would you get to the end state that you're proposing? Yes, yes. So as I said, there are already spheres of decommodified commonwealth of education, medical care, and so on. But we can also extend that sphere to free internet, free public transportation, maybe free urban gardenings, and so on. And once we expand the sphere of commonwealth or the commons, we will have more freedom to act against the logic of capital accumulation. We don't maybe have to work so hard, we can spend more free time on different kinds of political and ecological activities. And that kind of accumulation of reformative change within capitalism will accelerate the transformation in the future. And especially I'm hoping that the younger generation, especially the generation Z, uh, like Greta Thunberg, will be leading the change in the next 20 years. The older generation will be gone in the next 30 years, and the younger generation do not believe in capitalist prosperity in the future anymore because their experience in the last 20, 30 years are already marked by increasing economic inequality, precarious jobs, wages stagnating, and then the climate crisis is coming in the future. And all the existing attempts within capitalism uh, led by politicians and global elites are failing to meet their expectancy. So I think the new value standards, they are demanding something much more radical, different things and so on. These things will become mainstream in the future because even the much younger generation, alpha, beta, will be experiencing the same future. So that stream is coming. And I think we older generation should be prepared for the radical systematic change in the coming decades. If we step away from your specific thesis, I guess your more general thesis is that the climate change problem and problems like the climate change problem, like extreme inequality, are inevitably linked to political economic system change at some point. And, you know, that's, that's quite a shocking idea. I think for, that would be quite a shocking idea for many business people. Why would you argue that we are close to or must consider system change? Because we are losing imaginations 
But the problem is the existing solutions, but Paris Agreement, Great Reset, and anything are not really bringing necessary transformation. And many people are disappointed. And those disappointed people are actually voting for Trump or other kinds of right-wing populists. And this is also bringing crisis of democracy. And I think we really need to have the responsibility to present a better future for everyone, including the people in the global south. The people in the global south are also becoming very skeptical about the global north discourses about human rights and environment and so on. And this divide between global north and south are very serious, especially when we, as a whole human being, have to tackle the existential threat of climate crisis. So my idea of degrowth communism is about the people in the global north recognizing the responsibility for destroying the planet in the past and other issues of colonization, imperialism, and so on. And then we, it is an attempt to present a better society for everyone, including the global south. And that kind of solution or proposal is still quite utopian, I admit, but these utopian ideas are exactly missing in today's mainstream discourse. And I hope that this becomes some kind of inspiration for everyone who is looking for a better future. So let's let's maybe be devil's advocate in the other direction. Let's say that there is no chance that your proposal will be implemented in its full form. Nevertheless, as you said, a utopian idea can sometimes be a stimulus to move our thinking forward or to adopt, you know, aspects of your thinking. Now your book doesn't, you know, it's not a business book, so it doesn't deal primarily with what business people can can do in this equation. What could a business leader take away from your arguments or, or gain by contemplating your arguments? I think many business leaders should ask themselves whether they are becoming also happier as they become richer. You know, there are many researches that actually demonstrate that after a certain point, people do not become really happier, even if they are becoming richer, because it is much harder to make money after a certain point. And if you buy new cars, new houses, and keep buying those things, doesn't really bring happiness. Sometimes the happiness in your life is about spending your time with your family and friends, uh, doing something good for your whole community. And these are the things that are not necessarily reflected in GDP and other economic measures that are the most important thing in capitalism. So even the rich people have some non-capitalist happiness and the satisfaction in their own life. And why don't we expand that dimension, especially when many people are actually suffering from poverty and inflation, and we are also destroying the planet. I think we really need a different kind of vision of coexistence with nature and also very different vision of progress. I'm not denying many possibilities of human development, but the problem is today's capitalist development or economic growth is no longer really bringing good things that they used to bring about in the past. Now, of course, your book has been out for some time in Japan. What was the reaction there from the business community and other sections of society? And, and what have you learned from that? And how have your ideas evolved as a result? 
Yes, my book sold more than half million copies in Japan, and this book is about degrowth and communism. So that was a big surprise for me. But I think one of the reasons why my book became so popular was it came out during the pandemic, and during the pandemic, we actually witnessed the enlarging economic inequality and how the neoliberal reforms in the past decades destabilized. Medical system and other social welfares that we direly needed during the time, and it also demonstrated how our economic activities are destroying the planet, leading to that kind of global pandemic. So, while I was talking with some, you know, business people, they were surprisingly positive about my proposals. They were also dissatisfied with the current business models. They were dissatisfied with. Their own personal working style—they work too many hours and they are unhappy. So once they realize there are actually different ways of managing economy, managing communities, managing society, they were quite excited. And I think this is a great hope for me. I think those radical ideas, once forgotten after the collapse of Soviet Union, are actually coming back, and people at least find those proposals attractive. They don't know. How we can implement it? I don't know either, but I think it is a very good starting point that we collaborate together to build a better future today. So, all factors considered, as a person, what gives you the greatest hope that we can practically overcome climate change? Because, in a sense, saying that we are embedded in a system which is obsolete but very hard to change, it it doesn't seem like a very optimistic message on the on the face of it, but. With your optimist hat on, what, what's the most hopeful sign that you think we can overcome climate change? The hope is actually that many people, especially the young generations, are responding in a very positive manner to my proposal to degrowth kind of economy, and their voice has been marginalized in society like Japan. Japan is a conservative society where elderly people have more voice, and you know. In Japan, the younger generation number is decreasing, and so on. But once I wrote this book and actively advocated the importance of degrowth and you know the Commonwealth kind of economy, many people who have been marginalized in the neoliberal society get excited. They felt that their voice get represented by mainstream media through my book. And they are starting to raise their voices in local communities, and local politicians are also responding to those voices. And there's local transformation already taking place. And I'm hoping that in the next decade or so, these voices will accumulate to a higher scale and transform the entire society. I see similar movements, similar voices taking place all over the world in the U.S. in Europe. The growth is especially popular in Europe right now, and I, I hope that this voice will be conveyed to the United States, where this excessive logic of coercion power of growth is very, very strong, and the U.S. is very responsible for the carbon dioxide emission and so on. So I think once the great transformation takes place in the U.S., the society or the entire world will change. So. I'm hoping. I'm very excited about the publication of my book, Slow Down, in the English, and、uh, we will have more conversation in the future. Well, thanks so much for spending time with me today,、uh, Kohei, explaining your ideas, and congratulations again on the、uh, English publication. Thank you so much. 
So I've been discussing the book Slow Down, The Degrowth Manifesto from Astra House Publishing, put out in January 2024 with the author Kohei Saito. Whether one agrees with his conclusions or not, and I suspect that many in business will not agree, I think that I can safely say that it's a very stimulating read. It, it won't go unnoticed. And I think with a serious and difficult problem like sustainability, I think there's great merit in expanding our horizons and thinking and understanding alternative arguments. And uh, as Kohei has just said himself, sometimes a utopian idea can have a stimulus value towards moving us forward in the right direction. If you like this conversation, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform. And as always, we welcome your feedback.